Hi everyone, I'm Claudia Sarek. And I'm Zach Mack. And this is So You Want to Run a Restaurant, holiday episode, powered by Back of House, where we let you have a seat at the table and talk about trending topics on the restaurant industry. Well, we are excited to have Alyssa Kaplan on the show today. I mean, she's from World Central Kitchen, which is an absolute favorite of mine and many. I know it mine really too. made headlines during Ukraine, and it's made headlines before, given all of their uh, all of their support that they've given during crisis and the humanitarian relief that they provided in various countries. I, just, I can't wait to have her on the show. I'm so glad. What a perfect episode for the holidays. Yeah, truly. I can't think of anything better, honestly. she it, it, It's such an incredible mission, and everything I've ever heard about it and learned about it, just it's really uplifting and inspiring, especially given the state of the world over the last few years with mm-hmm. COVID and all the other the problems we've had on top of it. It's it's really kind of amazing to see an organization come together that provides the most basic of all human needs in food and yeah. and doing so so sustainably and, and, and in such a impactful way. There's a different thing here that we also don't really talk about with a lot of NGOs, especially on the food side of things. And, and it's you know something I studied in the past in, in university. Uh, there's a lot of problems with typical NGOs that tackle food issues and and Mm -hmm. humanitarian relief. And they go about this in a very different way. It seems like they, they are working on lines that remain, that remain uh, focused on keeping people feeling dignified and comforted and tackling all the major issues that, uh, that come with, you know, setting up operations in disaster zones and -hmm. making sure you're, you're accomplishing your goals of getting there and helping people out. So for the folks that don't know, Alyssa is the culinary operations lead at World Central Kitchen, which, again, I, you've probably heard of. But if not, it's the charity organization founded by Chef Jose Andres that feeds people in difficult circumstances all over the world. You've probably heard about their work in Ukraine, responding to hurricanes, helping frontline workers, et cetera, et cetera. So they really, really go in there to like the worst disaster zones and try to feed feed the community. And they're making meals for thousands of people all at once. So this is not only... Um, like a really wonderful thing they're doing, but it's also like a very, very heavy logistical. There's a lo- real heavy logistical piece to this as well. So Alyssa's going to talk to us all about that. It is. It's really inspiring. I'm, I can't wait to, I can't wait to chat with her and learn more about how this, this all gets put together and, and comes to be. Yeah, absolutely. From restaurants and POS to marketing and loyalty programs, Touch Bistro is the all-in-one restaurant management system used by 29,000 restaurants all over the world. Touch Bistro can help you deliver a great guest experience that helps you increase your sales. And they have free 24-7 technical support, so all your questions can be answered right then and there. For a limited time, new customers who purchase Touch Bistro Point of Sale Get their first two months completely free. Visit backofhouse.io forward slash touch bistro and get started for free today. Alyssa, we are so excited to have you on the show. I am such a personal fan of World Central Kitchen, and I cannot wait to have this conversation with you today. Um, so welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, yeah, Alyssa, honestly, same thing. Same as Claudia. I'm a huge fan of everything you do, and I'm really happy we get to talk to you today. I feel like it's a perfect time to bring up a lot of the stuff too. Um, so usually when we kick off the interview, we go right to the nitty gritty and start off like where it all began. How did you get, before you even started getting involved with World Central Kitchen, how did you get into food in general and cooking? Yeah, no. so my 
grandfather on my dad's side was a chef in New York City, uh, worked mostly in hotels and did taught at the technical school. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was a chef. So growing up like with him, family holiday dinners were like a big deal. He his his matzo ball soup is like was well renowned and um and so food was a big deal in my dad's family's house. And then on my mom's side, her family were all farmers from southern Illinois. And so like memories there of picking the dill and uh having pickling days and my grandmother had drawers of jello and there was 30 different types of jello salad depending on the um on the occasion and everyone got their own pie at thanksgiving so i I think i grew up in a house a household generally that was sort of just obsessed with food um so i think my base level of like what was normal uh just was like a little different than most folks and then when i was in a freshman in college, I was I was international politics, so it kind of came around full circle. But I was majoring in international politics, and same, really, <laughs> we all were, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Pre law, pre law, like look at us now. Um, but <laughs> yes, I was majoring in that, and one of my still best friends, uh, and her husband actually works in the foreign service, so she also now is sort of like traveling oh. a lot. But uh, she. I I can't even really remember the story exactly, but she basically, I remember one day came into my dorm room across the hall from hers and sort of bullied me in the nicest way possible into going to culinary school. And I was like, no, when I retire, like I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm not going to, um, kitchens aren't for me. That's not, you know, my grandfather was a chef. Like that's not, not my career. Uh, I wouldn't know where to start. I'm, I'm too much of a princess to work in a kitchen. You know, like I had all these reasons. And so she, kind of kept at it. And I, I'm a very emotional decision maker. I'm not very good at thinking things through. (laughs) And I just sort of made an emotional decision that like, that's what I was going to do. So I graduated from college early, used the fourth year of tuition money to go to culinary school in Paris, um, sort of for S's and G's. I thought it was going to be fun. And then I thought that, you know, in my 18 year old brain, it would make a lot of sense to pay for law school by being a cook, a line cook oh, or a chef, wow. as if line cooks would make that enough money to do that. <laughs> I was going to say, that's ambitious. That's very ambitious. Yeah. Totally yeah. <laughs> clueless. Um, but about a month into culinary school, I was at the like, you know, school bar and uh, was pretty drunk, I think on the bar and just like made yeah. an announcement that like, this was it. This is what I was going to do. And so then I, I finished culinary school there. I worked illegally for a couple months before I got caught. And then I worked, um, you know, interned uh, officially through, you know, EU has a little bit more rules around working for free than America does. Uh, so then I worked uh, as, as a stage for eight, eight months or something like that afterwards until my visa was really running out and I was uh, getting, becoming exhausted with not being in the United States. And one of the guys I was working with was coming back to the States to open up, be an opening CDC at a restaurant in Boston. And so I just followed him and then um, worked in Boston for years. So that's kind of how I, how oh. I got into, into wow, cooking. Wow, you were really all over. <laughs> Are you from Boston originally? Mm. Yeah, you really were. Um, not from Boston originally. That was the first time I had really been there was when I moved there. I grew up mostly up and down the East Coast, moved around a lot as a kid. Um, but middle school and high school were in Georgia, Athens, Georgia. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. It's a good season for us I this year. I keep thinking about your, where, where you started and you said you've got like the Midwest, like home, homey, the homey food, like you're in the, you're in the food central area of the United States. And then you've got this New York culinary experience too. So I'm like, wow, you have like the perfect mix of 
all of the foodie stuff in the United States there with your with um how you grew up. So with a global perspective on yeah, politics no, too. I love that. Exactly. That too. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So how did you first hear about World Central Kitchen? I'm curious how that all came about and how did you first become involved with them? Yeah. So it kind of was a I really and truly like my whole WCK experience, I feel like is I just sort of fell in the right space at the right time. But I knew of World Central Kitchen because I, I you know, I, I went to college in D.C., so I knew Jose, uh, I knew of Jose, knew his restaurants. Um, and then different chefs that I had worked for uh, had been friends with him. And so, you know, I'd, there's a, lots of pictures of me sort of like in the background, uh, <laughs> yeah. of like a big kitchen shot when Jose came to visit. Um, <laughs> but I so I was working in Boston in 2018 and I actually uh had been getting really, really bad headaches and then woke up one or really went to bed one night and the headache just wouldn't go away. And and basically what ended up happening after multiple emergency room visits is I had a tumor on my pituitary um, that had gotten too big for the space wow. and had exploded. And it wasn't cancerous, but it had its own blood supply. So um, there oh was like blood floating in my brain, even though I, my brain never lost blood. So again, it was sort of like the best brain tumor to have, but it was a scary time in that I, you know, I had, I ended up having to have surgery, but a lot of tests, I lost vision for about a week. I lost memory. I lost processing. Oh my gosh. Um, oh my God. Of course I kept trying to work through a lot of this and then ending up back in the emergency room, uh, in, in the kitchen. And so I ended up then having surgery, um, went back to work quickly, less than like two weeks afterwards. Cause I felt like so much guilt over the months of, you know, figuring this out and, um, yeah, I went back to work. I, I really, I, I never got COVID where I lost taste and smell, but I empathized so much with people because after surgery, I lost taste and smell yeah. and I went back to work and would do like line checks and couldn't taste or smell. <laughs> oh and so my then God. I had like one AM sous chef who knew and one PM sous chef who knew. A chef that, that can't it. taste so or I smell. I just remember this one time like tasting the hummus and being like, the texture <laughs> is questionable. <laughs> the salt's okay. I don't know anything else, but because this texture is weird, I was yeah. like, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh so my God. Couple, couple things like that. Like it could be rancid. I'm not sure. Um, I, just, I hope no one's ever questioned your commitment to getting into the kitchen because- <laughs> Right. Brain tumor is definitely not on the list of things I've heard for callouts. That's right. unbelievable. And, and I'm really happy that it was, like you said, a best case scenario, but unbelievable. I mean, did like, did that kind of influence as well? Like, it sounds like that made you double down on your commitment into what you're doing, I guess. Exactly. So the, I, I didn't, didn't process all of that kind of like trauma and, and everything that went down. And so about a month later, I just hit this really hard wall. I became like the worst sort of version of myself and did some different, you know, different things happen. But I realized that I had to take time off and that I couldn't couldn't do this anymore. And so I the end of 2018, I left kitchens and for a year was just going to travel. I worked at a bakery in Miami um, that I knew the owner of. I worked on an organic farm near where my parents were living at the time in North Georgia. Um, and that's when Hurricane Dorian hit in the Bahamas. And I was actually in New Orleans, um, just hanging out. And I used to work for Ken Oranger and he's friends with Jose and he was there mm -hmm. with Ming Tsai and, and Jay Hodge. And um, I was like, I messaged him and I was like, I'm not doing anything. Like you guys need people. And he was like, Oh, I think we're good right now, but you know, fill out the form. So I filled out the form, didn't hear back. And then two weeks later, he's like, Hey, I think they need people now did you ever hear back? And I said, no. And he gave me my old boss who ended up being my old boss's uh, 
number was like, email this guy. And I emailed him and said, hey, I'm available. And 12 minutes later, I had an email. He had responded and said, "Could you? Oh, can you be wow. here in five hours? Wow. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. And so I went down for five days as a volunteer. I... I walked in to the kitchen in the Atlantis Resort in the Bahamas after Hurricane Dorian. And, you know, I hadn't been in a kitchen at that point by nine months. I'd gone through this whole identity crisis, trauma. You know, I was kind of a bit of a mess. And as I, I was fine, but I was kind of a bit of a mess. And I walked in and they're like, oh, we're so glad our new executive chef is here. And I was like, no, no, no. I came to, like, cut carrots on a line. Like, what do you, I don't, <laughs> like, I, I don't know what, what. And he was like, oh, no, it's fine. It's just like making family meal. And I was like. But for five thousand lunch tomorrow, like I, I don't have a family. Meal. I've never done a family meal that big. He's like, Nah, you'll be fine. Don't worry. I was like, You know, yeah. I haven't been in a, in a kitchen wow. in nine months. He was like, It's it's riding a bike. You're fine. And it really ended up being fine. I ended up staying for six weeks, I think, um, to see that wow. kind of project almost to its end. And then I really thought that was it. I was gonna go back to Boston, help friends of friends open a restaurant, uh, and then they asked me if I would do some short term contracting work um, to help. Uh, open up a kitchen on the border when there were all the refugees um, uh, on the, excuse me, Mexico-Texas border Mm -hmm. during the Remain in Mexico program. And there were a bunch of people in camps and Mexico didn't have the um, resources to feed them. And so we went and opened a kitchen there. So I was there for up until March 15th, 2020, which is when I came on full time in WCK, which was kind of crazy because it was the day that every restaurant in America closed for COVID, I got this like amazing job, amazing opportunity, full benefits. Um, and we went into this huge growth spurt as we, you know, took tackled the the COVID crisis and our, our project, our activation for COVID. So um, yeah, it was, it was really weird. All my peers were closing their restaurants and I was, you know, incredibly busy running around trying to keep people fed. So that's that's how I ended up here at WCK. Still here <laughs> three years later. That is wild. You have also you've had a quite a busy couple of years in a way that I think anyone could agree they've had a busy like I that was that's a lot that's happened to you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> even absolutely. Yeah. So I feel like so it sounds like you're doing like a lot there or what, what, when you first started, you were you were helping with the cooking. You were also it sounds like you were helping with the operational side of things. How is that? How has that evolved to today of what, how you're supporting or your role within the organization now? Yeah. I mean, it's been pretty cool in that I've gotten to do in terms of our, our teams that go out um, into the field, I've been able to do almost every, every job, which has been neat. So yeah, I started out as, you know, the chef, executive chef of the kitchen. I have done that a few different times on activation. I've also helped lead like our distribution. I've helped run the whole project, you know, been the project manager for the for the whole project on different places. Uh, um, yeah, so I've got to see see a lot of that. And then now um, my position is director of culinary. And that's more of I don't go long term mm-hmm. as much to places. So I'll still, you know, Hurricane Ian just happened and I was in Hurricane Ian, but I was there for about eight days. So I went to kind of help get it started. And then, you know, just fill gaps. I helped uh, set up one of the field kitchens that we did before handing it over to the the executive chefs and, and culinary managers who would run that. So my time now is a little bit shorter. I'm, I kind of have eyes on all of the projects as opposed to being really specifically in the weeds on one individual project. So it's, it's a little bit of a change. Um, the lifestyle is a bit more sustainable yeah. uh, in, this, in this role. But we're working on now a lot of, um, you know, just 
we're such a startup and we, we're so in the work all the time. And unfortunately, there's so much work all the time. There's disasters happening that we're really now looking to some of our SOPs, which were done really quickly just so that we could operate of building those out, really thinking those through now that we have so much more experience under our belt and have done so many different things. We're not just responding to natural disasters anymore. So, you know, thinking about that in COVID, we started working a lot more with restaurants and food trucks, really trying to like make that engagement better and really think about that. So that's sort of what my role is, is now. Well, so, I mean, you kind of just touched on this, but COVID, I mean, was a huge hallmark of the last couple of years and and was terrible for a lot of reasons. But unfortunately, there was a lot of other terrible things going on. Mm -hmm. And you guys were on the front lines of a lot of that, um, which is part of what is so important about your organization. I was wondering, have you found yourself in the last few years? Have you personally been in any kind of dangerous situations? I mean, you guys really put yourselves out there uh, and and you're on the ground pretty much right away. So it's just, I guess it kind of has to come with the territory in a way, I guess. Right. Or what's your experience has been like? Yeah, no, for sure. So one of the things that I like to always, or I, I always kind of think about is that one of the beauties of WCK is that we are just sort of average folks doing this work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of times there feels like that barrier to entry to do kind of humanitarian or nonprofit or international disaster work uh, because you need like medical experience in order to do that. Or you need, you know, you really need this like professional experience to do that. And, and what we do the professional experience that you need is just being like, you know, like me, like a scumbag line cook who you know, knows how to, how to do that. And, and one of the great things, too, for me, for us as cooks is that like our most successful cooks are often the humble ones. Like you don't necessarily have to have an amazing pedigree um, or have worked at the best restaurants to be the most successful, because what we're doing is taking. We're providing comfort, and mm-hmm. a lot of times that means providing what grandma makes or how grandma makes in this area. And, um, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know that. So, and you're also coming in as the American, the nonprofit, the chef with this great pedigree. And so really trying to break down those walls to get the community to teach you, Mm -hmm. um, what is best. So I have, I have so many really, really amazing examples and cool stories and people that I've met along the way where that has happened. But, um, yeah, so that's part of the, the beauty of it is that we're, we're average folks. Um, but these are dangerous and real, real situations. So it is something that, you know, as we've changed and, you know, the war on Ukraine has really um, pushed in our project and working there has really changed, changed that as well. And the way we're thinking about that, we are providing and creating more and more trainings um, as we learn and, and have, have those resources available to us. And, and different teams do different things. A lot of times, like in the kitchen, we sort of are like the most safe, like we're not going out. We're not really seeing <laughs> sure. things. We're sort of like in this safe right. you know, space doing what yeah. we need to do every day to make sure the meals go out. But yeah, you know, I think um, Haiti, going to Haiti was mm. uh, was challenging. That was that was a difficult one. And we had different security protocols in place to keep the team safe and different communication, um, different communication sort of uh, platforms and check ins and, and whatnot. Uh, for Ukraine, I, I was in Poland, Moldova, and Romania mm-hmm. for that project. And so, you know, I not in, not in Moldova, but, you know, I kind of was under that NATO EU protection zone. So I, I did not put myself out there as much as other team members did. And, and mostly for the Ukraine activation, it's completely run by Ukrainians for that reason. We have, we have very few international people 
in the project just for those safety reasons. And those people do have extra security, um, the, you know, the military vests, all these kind of things. So uh, there, there is extra protection there. But yeah, it's, it can definitely... And then there's just moments of like anyone who travels internationally and is an airhead, you know, driving somewhere you've never driven before can be very dangerous sure. um, and can be so like, Truly, yeah. make sure you got your seatbelt on, you know, like yep. sometimes it's just that simple too, but yeah. Yeah. Wow. I can Use only... CarPlay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can only imagine all of the things that you've seen in all the areas that, given all the areas that you guys have, that you've been in, but I feel like the work also has to be incredibly rewarding as well. So is there a specific encounter or memory? You talked a little bit about Haiti, and I know that was more of the security side of things, but just a memory during your time with World Central Kitchen that has really stuck with you personally. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a, a few. I think the, um, the camp I mentioned earlier, the, which was my second experience with WCK in, in Matamoros, the refugee camp, I think I was, I was there so long. And so, you know, we like made... Uh, Trace like Chase cake for one of the guys who was working for us in the camp's daughter and yeah. had like a little birthday party. And oh, wow. uh, one of the families that now live in the United States, um, they have two kids and those two, the son who was older um, was also working with us and like he loved lasagna. So we, we ended up putting lasagna on the menu, you know, uh, just for him. And it was a big, it was a big hit in general. Uh, not something awesome. you would normally think for like Guatemalan, Honduran, um, you know, refugees, migrants on the border kind of, but <laughs> lasagna, big hit, um, which is great. Oh, universal and language. Inter- yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so a lot of really like special memories, especially when they, um, you know, were award, you know, they were escaping the cartels and, and were awarded to the, their, you know, san- uh, sanctuary here in the United States. Like those kind of moments are really very, very special. I was in Madagascar at the beginning of the year after the two cyclones that hit um, right before the war broke out in Ukraine. I was actually there when the war broke out uh, at the end of February. And that was also just like a really beautiful experience. I think every person except for one on the team got some sort of gastrointestinal oh, no. Uh, oh, no. issue while we were there. Um, because, you know, it's, it's we were in this really the seaside fishing village, um, you know, not no electricity, no running water, generator power was everything. And we built this kitchen completely with um pots they're called villani which is a pot um that's a malagasy pot we just bought the biggest ones we could find in madagascar and i think we had like 34 of them was it there we had a lot of them going we had the rice one and then the stew we had a rice kitchen and a stew kitchen and um we had like 75 people from that village um on staff five translators who were from from their uh, English speakers and then about 75 people on staff, which was just really, was really cool because they were doing all the cooking. So it was like, people loved the food. Um, they, the, we also were able to like pay people while they were in this position of needing to, basically people don't really have savings in this village. And so, and the houses are made of sort of like a rice paper and they're very, easy to and quick to build and they're not very expensive to build but they also don't stand up to cyclones very well and so Mm. with two high cyclones back to back um people sort of had to make the decision of like do i pay for food or do i pay or do i save enough money to rebuild my my house and so while we were able to be providing food and then for our 75 employees so many of them were able to like rebuild their houses after that second cyclone hit um and so like that that 
response that activation was like just this really beautiful i don't know little little habitat we were able to hand over to the international ngos that are there full-time dealing with the you know the um the drought and long-term food insecurity once they were able to get back up and running after the flooding you know and, and everything subsided so that um wow that was just like a really cool really really special project to have been involved in that's that's incredible i mean being able to get anything like accomplished after back-to-back natural disasters is insane what i mean i'm just for ever for the listener's sake in general what's the logistical side of this like like how do you guys get in your equipment and your food do you work with ngos or is this something you guys all handle yourselves or with the governments or how does it how does that go about totally so um it is it's different every time <laughs> it's hard for us to ever say like this is how we do it because course, we always, yeah, yeah. We're always kind of changing it's, it's sort of whatever however you know we need to get it done Generally, um, we're, we're doing it ourselves. Um, we, we try to put money often back into the economy. And so like in Madagascar, it's a great example because it's, you know, very far from the United States where most of our resources are. Um, and it's not like we have anything really prepositioned there. So we were working with the first lady of Madagascar has an NGO and they work on long-term food insecurity, but they also move fast like we do. And so with them and like the people they knew we were able, you know, they were able to be like, oh, call this supplier. And so we were able to purchase um, equipment quickly because we knew who to call through them. And then, yes, yeah, so we purchase it. And then it's, it's kind of, you know, food procurement is always a tricky one because we need a lot of food. We need a lot of ingredients yeah. in order to do thousands of meals. I can imagine. <laughs> um, yeah. And you want to support, you know, local farmers. So we, and, and food producers in general. And so, you know, in Madagascar, we were buying from the market, but you don't want to buy everything from, you don't want to buy out all the carrots in the market because now nobody else has carrots right. and they're right. artificially inflated. Right. So, and on islands, that's, you know, the worst. When we're responding on, on an island, um, you really can, you really can do that. So we, um, so it's sort of a mix. So we, we were buying, like all of our rice, actually, the town that we were in had like a rice, warehouse so almost all of our rice came from the town that that we were in and we were at the market kind of every day getting you know like oh we this soup is going to need more ginger okay go out and buy like eight kilos of ginger we were doing doing that but we were purchasing like the bulk from the capital and having it come come down um just again to to not dry out you know what might already be limited after a storm and that that often happens in like we don't want if the crops are going to go bad, we will try to take them and use them. But if, um, you know, but also we we don't want to, and we want farmers to get enough money to start doing all the rebuilding that they need to do. Um, but yeah, we don't we don't want to buy buy everything out. Yeah. What about storage? Because if you're buying some of these ingredients that need to be cold, are you bringing that with you, or again, are you using the local infrastructure to help you with? With some of the, the the cooling, the heating, the stuff that you normally need, like need. electricity, like you said, it, I'll do packing the generators. You're, yeah, you're yeah. cooking your your yeah. your HVAC, your stuff. Like, what is that's got to be insane? Getting a kitchen yeah. up and running for that many people too. <laughs> uh, all the time. We walked in, there was no water. We there was like oh we tried oh, wow. to like restart this well that hadn't been working for thirty years. Like we the <laughs> oh. the French NGOs and the Germans, uh, the German engineers ended up helping us and like. But like it was this whole thing. He had brought in a water filter, but it was this whole. It was crazy. Wow. Um, it's different, you know. In the United States, we have a lot more infrastructure. So when we respond to something like Hurricane Ian, um, we, you know, we have relationships with a lot of big broadliners. They'll drop drop trailers, refrigerated and dry for us. Um, and so that 
and then we have things prepositioned. We have some generators. We have some equipment, uh, you know, staged in in like Miami or, or wherever. And we just have relationships. Sun Belt, we we call on Sun Belt, and they they're amazing a lot. So the United States is a bit different. For somewhere like Madagascar, all we don't we didn't travel. The only thing we traveled with was that water filter because we knew water would be an issue. Um, and so everything else was procured on in Madagascar, mostly from the capital. And then it was like a 26 hour drive wow. down to, to Mananjari where we were. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of time refrigerated trucks, dry trucks are good storage. We try to pick a, a building or structure that has some sort of dry storage in it as well. That's one of the things we look for when we're building those types of kitchens. Um, but yeah, a lot of times we are purchasing it there. We, we've always wanted something Jose has always said and kind of doesn't 100% drive us, but is kind of what we try to stick to um, is the idea of like software over hardware where a lot it's the relationships, the networks connecting with different people to get the work done. And that like the people are the people are the best in the communities and where we are the best way to get things done as opposed to spending a lot of money bringing in like our preconceived notion and equipment of how it's going to work this time. Because each time, you know, nine out of 10 times we might be using refrigerated trucks, but we might show up somewhere and like, that's just not a good option. And right. we don't want to be stuck in this, like, well, we have to do it that way. Cause it's what's 90% of the time successful. So yeah, yeah I can imagine there's really not a plug and play for this sort of situation. No. It's I mean, geographically. And I'm curious, do you speak any other languages? No, I stumble <laughs> I stumbled through French, which is embarrassing because I lived in Paris for two years. Um, <laughs> my I stumble through Spanish, which is embarrassing, like kitchen Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really about it. I, I always really rely on the translators. We do have teammates that speak the local language, different languages, yeah. multiple languages. Yeah, that's definitely one of my my weak weakest points. Everybody's got the skill sets needed to make the soup, right? Everybody's got their own seasoning that's going to make the soup work. So that's, I, I like that. So I actually was wondering, I not to really change up topic too much, but it, it's been a weird couple of years for restaurants everywhere because of COVID. It, it's a pretty uniquely affected industry um, in a lot of ways. Um, but I've also really been struck by how eager chefs seem to be to get involved and like help out when things go wrong. And in general, like COVID has kind of like highlighted a lot of that activity again. Yeah. Um, and obviously your organization is like at the forefront of something like that. Um, do you think like I've spent a, a lot of time in kitchens myself and, and as on the ownership side and in, like on the working side, do you think the culture like this kind of exposes like a, I'm not trying to feed you an answer or anything here, but <laughs> like your experiences with the like, kitchen culture and like in, in hospitality, do you feel like this kind of like speaks to a little bit of like the ethos of the industry? And like the kind of people that go into that line of work. Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely think it does. Um, and I appreciate it. Yeah. Feed me answers all, all day long. <laughs> they keep it easy for me. No, um, but I, I do agree. I think, you know, and I feel, I feel like when I was working with kitchens, you know, so many of my friends and colleagues, like they, we go into cooking because that is how a lot for a lot of us, like how we express um, that we care about somebody or something, even if that wasn't maybe naturally how, why you went into it, even if you went into it because you just needed a job, like some of those guys and, and gals end up being like the most giving of, of food and like that. And so I think it's just, it's part of the culture, whether you come into it or, that way, or it kind of just becomes part of you. Um, and I feel like, you know, I, I always, as a line cook, like wanted to do something in the schools or, 
teach some sort of class, it's just like the schedule and the lifestyle is just really hard when you're you were always understaffed. There's always more to be done. And so by the time I you know would have a day off, I just didn't have the energy to really to like go find those opportunities, I think. And like a lot of times they're not just I think, you know, for some of your most famous and like well-known chefs, those opportunities may be presented or given to them more. I don't think as much as they could or should be. But for your average line cook, like nobody's coming to them and being like, you know what you could do? Like, here's No Kid Hungry and how you can Mm -hmm. get involved and when and et cetera. And so I think that's one of the really cool things and something that we hope to continue to build out as we have more people and more time and can be more thoughtful about that engagement is helping people find those opportunities when you live in a place where there is a disaster and we show up, like we saw this in New Orleans after Hurricane Ida, when we had people coming from every restaurant out to help and we had a huge staff of chefs. I think we had like 60, 80 chefs on staff. Wow. Um, And that was so incredible. Um, And, but that doesn't, that's really hard. It's also really financially hard for a chef to be like, you know what? Uh, There was a hurricane in Bahamas or a, volcano in St. Vincent, I'm going to go fly down and volunteer. There's right. a spot open. It's just like, we, we don't have that. Um, and we, we can't pay, you know, we're a nonprofit, so we can't necessarily pay for volunteers to come do that. Um, and, and, you know, spend money that way. So it is tricky. Um, and because our opportunities are so disaster based, it's not like every Tuesday show up here. Right. Right. Um, so it can be, it is definitely tricky, but I, I do agree. And I think that, chefs want this and it is really cool the more and more they get the opportunity to be those people in their communities um and have those opportunities that it's it's just really cool to see all, mm-hmm. all the changes that are coming and it is really one of the silver linings i guess that came out of covid i would agree do you lean on the folks that are actually in those disasters that maybe were culinary and have culinary backgrounds as well to help and support you and kind of drive some of the menu options or the way how you're presenting the food and just, I would imagine, cause you're so community oriented and I, I love your mentality too, of we're going in there and like what you said before of like the logistics and the food, like we don't want to just put our way of thinking on you. And I think that that really is a humanitarian ethos of we actually want to like, we need to like serve our community by de- working with the community. So I'm just curious about the, the local chefs. I, yeah, no, we're always we're always trying to find um, local chefs for that sort of consultancy type work, but then also to work in our kitchen. Sure. The first, the Bahamas, the first activation I was on, um, we had a group of teenagers and then moms uh, that came and they were living in the shelter and they came every day um, to help cook and work. And it took like a couple weeks, but then, yeah, they started really driving the menu and we ended up kind of turning it over to, to the moms. Oh, very um, cool. But yeah, I learned like some great dishes. They like helped change the menu. It was it was good too because they knew the real feedback right. um, <laughs> about stuff. And so, yeah, and so it was really great for me because I learned new things. And, and that population that was hurt by Hurricane Dorian was um, most of the people are not in Nassau, but Abaco and, and other islands, which is mostly uh, Haitian immigrants to the Bahamas. And so the food I was assuming when I went down would be Bahamian. And they, they live in the Bahamas, so like mm-hmm. Bahamian food, sure. But really what they wanted was Haitian food, but not necessarily Haitian food that you would, that we made like in Haiti after the earthquake. It was like, you know, um, Haitian Bahamian. expat Haitian yeah. type, you <laughs> yeah. know. Yeah. And so wow, like very that, niche. that was like really, 
Yeah. And a lot of a lot of places, too, it's not just like the ingredients or the recipe. It's the way of preparing the food. Sure. Um, That's so important. And we try everywhere we go to serve meals with comfort and dignity. And a big piece of that is that like for a meal to be comforting, it can't just taste good and be the right temperature. Mm -hmm. It also needs to be like when you eat it, you need to feel confident that you're not going to get sick from it or Mm -hmm. that like, you know, whether for whatever reason. And so I'm, you know, and and my family lives in Grenada and that's where I am right now. But uh, the next big island north of us in the West Indies is St. Vincent. And we were there after the hurricane or I'm sorry, the volcano uh, about a year and a half ago. And the there's this one ingredient, callaloo, which is like the leaves of taro and in Grenada, which is how I've eaten it a lot in my life they you know have it in quiche and callaloo is <laughs> great right in croquettes and your soup and there's all different types yeah. of ways and when we were um prepping the green green sauce marinade for the stew chicken in saint vincent i was running out of herbs and so i was like oh we gotta bulk this up we have a bunch of callaloo that's gonna go bad just throw the callaloo in there before it goes bad so we don't lose it and that'll help bulk up the amount of marinade we need and one of the grandmas who was volunteering like came up to me and she was like you will kill people if you do that she's like hallelujah can only be eaten in stews i'll come in tomorrow i'll show you how to make it but don't you can't serve this to people and i was like well, you know it's like one of those where i was like <laughs> so I, i've done this before and i haven't died Whoa. so i know i'm okay but yeah. i was like but it's going to get out that we're doing, like, this is not okay. Sure. Right? So it was like a quick, like, okay, Kalaloo will only be served in stews. I am so sorry. And that was just me again, like, thinking, well, the, the next island over does it this way. So, of course, this island, and it's, no, these islands are, like, they're totally different. There's different cultures. There's different, you know, stories and ways of doing stuff. And so you really can't ever go in with with any sort of, like, I, I know what's the right. right to do here because you probably don't. <laughs> um, unless you're, you know, from there. And so we, yeah, we rely completely on, on chefs, um, and just, you know, grandmas, cultural people, people who know the culture and the food culture to, to teach us and show us what to do. I mean, that's, that's amazing. I think there are a lot of people out there who granted you're going in there in like very dire situations and, and no one wants that, but there is something beautiful about like the kind of exchange that happens. Like you just said, you get to experience something totally unique and and it always it's, it seems always like very enlightening and educational to to learn these things i'm I f- i'm feeling uplifted just even talking about it so it's pretty cool but um i now because you just said it can be pretty difficult for people to kind of just jump into this because finances and things like that are definitely a constraint times a constraint for a lot of people in the industry what would you recommend to someone who's a chef or a restaurateur who really wants to get involved with WCK or is really interested with its mission and wants to help out? Yeah. So we have a um, great question. We have a few different kind of options of, of engagement and we are building them out too. So bear with us. because hopefully in six months, there'll be a little bit more, but yeah. I mean, first off, the easiest way is to just join our volunteer core. If you go to the website, you know how to get involved volunteer and just join that because then you'll get newsletters, um, and just, you know, general information about the organization as, as it comes. And so that's kind of the, the, the easiest and best way is really similar to like my experience and so many, so many of us on staff, this is, you know, a few years ago, but really just like kind of showed up and like, that's usually the best way to get involved. Um, so that's, that's number one. Um, in terms of, of chefs, we do have a community of chefs, um, called, they're called our chef core and it is. Um, smaller, it's about 250 to 300 chefs globally. Um, so it is kind of a, 
not not uh, there's like a bit of I guess exclusivity to it. There is like an application and, and vetting process to that. And so um, and really what we're looking for in that group is people who are tied to their communities. So like if a disaster happens in Houston, we have chefs in Houston who know who to call, have access to the equipment and the spaces and the people that we would need to know and have signed up to do that. They also sometimes travel and will come and help um, um, on an activation. Uh, so we have, you know, um, like Mark Murphy from Chopped is somebody in the Chef Corps and like he came out to Poland. It was in Poland for, for months as, as a volunteer um, on his own. But, you know, so sometimes people will do that as well and and be those not everyone's as big of a name as Mark Murphy. I just use him as an example, um, but he's a he's a rock star. <laughs> um, and yeah, so that's that is one group. And um that, you know, can be a referral and then there's an application process and and um, Laura uh, manages that. And then we also work a lot with um, sort of an external roster, people who are under a 1099 contract, so short contract work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also sort of has an application and, and vetting process. Um, that process is a lot faster often on the ground um, or if you have volunteered a few times, but um, that's the piece that we're still really like working out and, um, because there's just, there's so much, so much interest there, but we do have a lot of amazing teammates who are really more part-time and they just respond to activations and then they're off, um, off, off and, and not with us. And a lot of, in, a lot of our incredible chefs who are doing this work, um, do that. And I was one of those folks too, at one point. So do you find there's a lot of demand? Cause I feel like world central kitchen, I mean, especially during Ukraine, it was everywhere. I mean, on social media, so many people were showing support. I, I mean, I I was supporting. I mean, I myself donated. Thank you. So I'm like, I think to myself, wow, like I I feel like there must be tons of folks that are interested in, in this mission and to get involved right now. Yeah. So Ukraine was a big game changer for us. And so there was a lot of so much interest and we just didn't have the personnel and, and the ability to properly engage that. So I always feel bad because I think on the I think in the first we set up a link for people to sign up to be interested in. And yeah. I think in like three hours, 800 people signed up. Like it was, and we still were like just flying ourselves in yeah. and trying to figure out. So it was, it was insane. Um, I mean, it was incredible, but it was um, insane. And I, I do feel bad that like we weren't able to get back to or like help touch all those people who really were trying to give their best. Um, we also had like people just coming and, you know, people world of mouth found out where our kitchen, where it was and were showing up and we had to start putting in security because there was a lot of like Russian counterintelligence going on. And there was like, you know, people's identities being stolen mm. and things like that. So it was like, that also got really, really tricky on that. It was mm-hmm. like a, a learning curve for us too. And so, but yeah, no, the, the amount of people too, who actually did come and sign up and volunteer in Poland at our kitchen there was like incredible. And they're just this like very motivated, very dedicated, like incredible workers group of people. And um, yeah, and it really like showed it was really incredible for us and also showed us like we need more people to help support this. So we're kind of building out our own teams to to, to match the, the demand. But it was yeah, it was it was really amazing to see. And I think it was we were one of the fewer organizations that had opportunities like that, that it was more obvious as to how, how to help, um, 
But I mean, we would put up slots for volunteer shifts, and I think they were gone. And th- it was like Taylor Swift tickets, you know? <laughs> they were gone in three minutes. Like wow. people, people literally were like. I remember one lady like sent us an email and told us that like her assistant's job was just to refresh the volunteer wow. website. I was like, oh my god, that's wow. too intense. Yeah, <laughs> but, that's cool. Taylor Swift tickets. There. Let's be real. That's <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although to be fair, though, I like coordinating the people to do all of this is got to be just as much work as it is or or similar. I mean, I don't want to diminish the people that are actually on the ground or any, or like on the ground and in these, in these situations, dangerous situations. But I mean, that is a lot of coordination and especially when you're flooded like that, you're right. You didn't have, you don't, you know, you're not, you're not for profit. You don't have a, you know, you're not having a staff of like 500 people that are coordinating all of this. So yeah, top to bottom, so much logistics. It's incredible that you guys pull this off and, and literally in disaster zones, it's, it's really very impressive and yeah. it's a it's honestly an incredible incredible mission and i think it's we're better off for it so yeah thank you guys for doing what you do yeah <laughs> thank you and i and i don't take up too much of your timer but i feel like i could i feel like we could have made a two-hour episode out of this i want to hear all of the stories in between everything it's just such a unique thing that you're doing and what a way to take that community restaurant experience and translate it into something that's like very food forward but still community humanitarian focus so incredible um but before you sign off we want to do a little tasting menu with you so three questions first thing that comes to mind uh we're doing this a little bit of a because this is our holiday episode it's got a little bit of a holiday a holiday taste to it so we put a little cinnamon and nutmeg on this Uh, (laughs) i know right favorite country to visit um italy ah good (laughs) Can't go Amen. wrong with that. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> holiday holiday food that you look uh, holiday food you look most forward to every year could be any holiday. Um. So I'm I'm Jewish yep. and latkes and there's this whole there's like you know how like I I have so many of my Jewish friends that we all like compete over latkes. My grandfather had like a special yeah. latke recipe. I'm like very like yeah latkes are my there's there's a whole. I'm Catholic. I'm Catholic and I look forward to latkes every year. Same. Same. I had a a work colleague. I had a a work colleague where I last worked who would would bring in a giant tray of latkes every every season. And I would just, oh my gosh, we all went nuts for them. They were so good. Okay, so last question here. Favorite holiday tradition? Oh, favorite holiday tradition. Um... I don't know. I just, I love Thanksgiving. I've always loved Thanksgiving. I think when I was young, I lived outside of the U S and like experienced Thanksgiving in a country where other people weren't celebrating it. And it was like this big, like, Oh, I lost this. Um, and so since then I love Thanksgiving and also being the Jew, I always agreed to work Christmas Eve and Christmas day oh. and to get Thanksgiving off. So that was, I always made that switch nice. um, to cover for people. And so I think just, Thanksgiving in general, like the whole sitting around with like people that you love and, you know, having some sort of conversation about gratitude. Um, and that, that would probably be my favorite. You said that before too, everyone gets a pie, right? With your grandma. It was like, what oh else yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is, yeah. Yeah. That was definitely it is, if you one like of, to provide for people. And, and there was always a jello salad. Since we're jello passing, salad, we don't have the jello salad better. anymore. We all kind of crossed that out, but <laughs> maybe we got to bring it back. Kind maybe of like aged out. Yeah. That was, <laughs> but, no, jello salad is so that is kind of a grandma thing though isn't it it's it um, is, yeah 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 had this place 
Well, thank you so much, Alyssa. Again, it was great having you on. I, you know, congrats on all the work that you're doing and the success of World Central Kitchen. And we are really rooting for you guys, your organization, just everything you're doing. Yeah. Thank you so much, Alyssa. Yeah. This is really fun. Want to hear more listeners? Then you need to head to backofhouse.io, where you can find the latest on restaurant technology, food service industry news, a ton of free how-to guides, like how to digitize your space, how to work with food influencers, the latest on restaurant relief, and more interviews with industry experts. And while you're there, definitely remember to sign up for their free weekly newsletter, eat.news. Back of House has a team of food service industry writers and journalists who cut through the noise and give you the headlines that you really need to see each week. This is honestly one of the best weekly food service focused newsletters I've ever read or seen, and I wouldn't say that if it weren't true. Follow us on Twitter at BOH underscore podcast and at We Are Back of House on all other platforms.